So, tonight we're going to be talking about the moral attributes of God's character. Um, we've talked about several attributes already, but tonight we're going to be talking about the moral attributes, as they're called. They're named this way because they have to do with his morality, obviously, <clears throat> and which really has to do with God's position, his posture, his, how he deals with things outside of himself, so with his creation and primarily humanity. And so these are goodness, love, mercy, justice, wrath, those types. It's his outward, kind of the way that God acts. Um, and specifically the way that God acts towards his people and how he deals with them. Um, these traits that we're going to read about and discuss tonight tend to be, or start to discuss tonight, tend to be the ones that we see the most from God because they're his outward acts. They're not like his mental state, like his knowledge or his truth. These are how God acts towards us, like his love, his goodness, etc. So they're a little bit easier for us to understand because we see God pushing on us with these attributes. So the first attributes that we are going to discuss tonight is God's goodness. God's goodness. Now my definition here for the goodness of God, and this is where a PowerPoint would be helpful, is that God is the final standard of good. And all that God does is, or all that God is and does is worthy of approval. I'll read that again. <laughs> the goodness of God means that God is the final standard of good, and all that God is and does is worthy of approval. All right, I'll read it one more time if you're copying it down. The goodness of God means that God is the final standard of good, and all that God is and does is worthy of approval. All right, so... Just like we did with truth last week, we're going to define the word good because we have to have our terms in line. So when I use the word good, what's the first thing that typically comes to our minds? Probably something moralistic. So something about a choice, whether it's a good choice or a bad choice. When I use the word good, we typically think something moral, meaning something is preferable over something that is Wrong. So good versus wrong, right versus wrong. We think of good in those terms. But I want us to think of good as worthy of approval. So it, good is more in the lines of worthiness and approval rather than morality and right and wrong. So this is really important to when we understand what, in order for us to understand what goodness is. It's not moral uprightness. That's another attribute we're going to talk about later. Goodness is an approval stamp. So goodness says, yes, this meets the approval of somebody. So saying something is good is saying it is acceptable and it is worthy. All right? So it meets the requirements set forth. So with God, who we say is good... Who is doing the approving? Well, it's God himself. God does the approving. God needs approval from only himself. He's the only one who's 
He is able to approve himself. And he's the only one who can approve everything in, in the universe. God does the, improving, uh, the approving, and God himself is the only good thing because of that. <clears throat> this attribute of goodness that we're talking about is very similar to truth that we talked about last week, in that with truth, we discussed that God is the definition of truth. So if God says something, it's truth. If God does something, it's truth. Well, the same thing with goodness. If God does something or says something, it is good. Not just like, okay, we're going to fill out this form and submit it, and then God says, oh, approved. No, when God does something, it is always good, period. There's no um, need for anything else within him. He is always good. All goodness flows from God alone. He is the definition of goodness. He defines goodness in all ways. Apart from him, there isn't anything good anywhere. Which makes sense because as we've talked about in other places, he is the creator, he is infinite, he is wise, he is all those things. So tonight we're going to have the first verse, Luke 18, 19. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So this is in the context of the rich young ruler. <clears throat> Let's go to Luke and look at it a little, little bit closer. In Luke 18... Verse 19, we have the story of the rich young ruler. <clears throat> and the young ruler says to him, good teacher, what must I do to have eternal life? So he's posing a question about how does he get in the kingdom of God? And then Jesus goes into a discussion of goodness, of the idea of goodness, and talks about knowing the commandments. Now, it's interesting, he doesn't talk to him about being perfect, what Jesus is saying here, and what's really interesting is, so the rich young ruler is asking Jesus who approves people to get eternal life, basically, is what he's asking. And Jesus says, only God is good. Only God can do the approving. And then he says, here are the requirements for being approved. Keep the commandments, do not murder, blah, 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 all those wonderful commandments. And the ruler says, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said, one thing you still lack, meaning he's not approved. Sell all you have and distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. He heard these things. He became very sad, for he's extremely wealthy. And then Jesus said, how difficult is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? So here we're talking about an approval process. We're not talking about a moral character trait. We're talking about what things in our life meet the checklist for God to approve us in order to get into the kingdom of heaven, in order to have eternal life. And Jesus begins by saying, only God is able to approve us. Only God is able to do those things. And then he kind of presents a checklist. Obey the commandments, um, sell all you have and distribute to the poor, then you'll have treasure in heaven and you have to follow him. So he lists all these things off, which We'll talk about later how we can achieve that. We know that it's through the justification of Jesus Christ and him dying on the cross, of course. But even still, Jesus declares that only God is the good God. Only he is able to approve those of his creation. 
The next verse is Psalm 100, verse 5. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and His faithfulness to all generations. The Lord is good. He is approving. He is Himself approved because His steadfast love endures forever. He does not change in His love for us. Then we have Psalm 106.1. Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. So He's worthy of our glory. He's worthy of our praise because He is worthy, because He is good. And we really can use those terms kind of interchangeably. I say kind of because they are separate words, worthiness and goodness, but they are in the same category. He alone is worthy. And this is the same language that we have in Revelation. Let me go there real quick. This isn't on the thing. I'm... So it's not going to be up there. In Revelation, we have... Hold on just a second. So in Revelation 4.10, or Revelation 4.11 rather, we have the elders and the angels around the throne talking about Jesus saying, Worthy are you, Lord, on God to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. So we have this idea in Revelation of worthiness. Who is worthy? And in, verse, in chapter 5, they ask who is worthy to open the scroll and break the seals. And it's clear that only the Lamb of God, only Jesus is worthy to open the seals. And it's the same type of language here. He is worthy. He is good. They're the same, same kind of interchangeable words that are going on here. The Lord is worthy. The Lord is good. His worth has been approved. Next verse is Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. So, for us personally, this should be quite the revelation, especially when we talk about ethics and morality. Ethics is a big study in philosophy and psychology and theology. Um, The big question of ethics is what is good and what is right? And this is easily answered in the person of God. Basically, if God approves it, if God does it, if God says it, then it is good. There's no higher standard than God himself. So we don't have to go anywhere else or search for whether something is right or wrong. We just have to ask God. And he tells us in his word and through his Holy Spirit. In our own Christian walk, this is important because we can know beyond a shadow of doubt that we are choosing good things if we choose the things that God has chosen. Or if we obey him. So if God says something, whether it's in the Gospels or whether it's through his Holy Spirit, and we choose that thing, then we can know that we are choosing the right thing or a good thing, something that is approved by God. If we ch- and then 
that leads to fulfillment, that leads to happiness, that leads to joy, that leads to sustainability in our life. So when we choose the thing God chooses, then our life is completed, ultimately. Yeah, and it leads to eternal life. It leads to life everlasting with God. That's exactly right. But I'm talking not just on a big picture scale, asking the Lord to be Savior, but on a like, you know, a microcosm in our life, like driving to work and and you know, doing your job and raising your family, those types of things. All those little things, if we do them the way that God says, and they'll be approved by God, then they will go right with us. There's all these verses in Scripture, which we're going to look at some of them later, where it says, if you do this, it will go right with you. If you do this, it will go right with you. That's because do God's way, everything will fall into place. So we're also discussing the fact so that God himself is good, his personality, his person, everything is worthy and good, but also everything God does, every action he takes is good is approved, is worthy. So goodness flows from him, from his core identity, but everything he does is also good. If God does something, we can label it as good. Ultimately, we don't have to debate about whether God is evil or this. God is always good. We have some verses here that kind of underpin this. The first one is Genesis 1.31. And God sought everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So here we have kind of that approval idea coming into play. God made something, and he said, it is very good. It is approved. It is worthwhile. Then we have Psalm 119.68. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. This is David declaring that God is good and everything he does is good. Then we have passages in Roman or a passage in Romans, Romans 12:2, where Paul is talking to the church and says, "Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect." And I like those three words because it kind of sums up what we've been talking about of what goodness is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So all three of these terms are not moralistic terms, but they are approval terms. So what is good, what is approved by God, what is acceptable by God, acceptable obviously is a, in a, you know, an approving or disapproving term, and perfect as we talked about couple weeks ago, perfect is something that is complete, not something that is morally perfect, meaning no sin, but perfect is complete. Remember in the Bible, when you see the word perfect, it means complete and whole. And when you see the word holy, holy means moralistic. Holy means uh, righteous. You know, righteous and holy are those words. Good, acceptable, and perfect mean complete, built up fully fully designed and acceptable. So that's what we're talking about. When we talk about God's righteousness, that's his moral character, his, his right and wrong character. That's that word for it. 
So when we do not conform to this world, when we transform by the renewing of our mind, that means we're doing the things that God has told us. We're doing things God's way. That is what makes us acceptable. So I'm going to read a few longer psalms here. These psalms really just declare the goodness of God, especially through creation. The first one is Psalm 104. Like I said, this one's a little longer, but that's okay. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. He set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. He covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled. At the sound of your thunder they took flight. The mountains rose. The valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass so that they may not again cover the earth. You make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. In them the birds build their nests, the stork has her home in the fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats, the rocks are a refuge for the rock badgers. He made the moon to mark the seasons, the sun knows it's time for setting. You make darkness and it is night when all the beasts of the forest creep about. The young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. When the sun rises, they steal away and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until the evening. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom have you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. There go the ships and Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it up to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works, who looks on the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have being. May my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. Praise the Lord. So that psalm is really just a big approval stamp 
for God's work, His creativeness, and His wisdom. Psalm 106. Praise the Lord, O give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord or declare all His praise? Blessed are they who observe justice, who do righteousness at all times. Remember me, O Lord, when you show favor to your people. Help me when you save them, that I may look upon the prosperity of your chosen ones, that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation, that I may glory with your inheritance. Both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his name's sake, that he, make, make, that he might make known his mighty power. He rebuked the Red Sea, and it became dry. And he led them through the deep as through a desert. So he saved them from the hand of the foe and redeemed them from the power of the enemy. And the waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them was left. Then they believed his words. They sang his praise, but they soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel. But they had a wanton craving in the wilderness and put God to the test in the desert. He gave them what they asked, but sent a wasting disease among them. When men in the camp were jealous of Moses and Aaron, the Holy One of the Lord, the earth opened and swallowed up Dathan and covered the company of Abiram. Fire also broke out in their company and flame burned up the wicked. He made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a metal image. They made, not he made. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. That's an interesting quotation that Paul uses later in Romans. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. Therefore he said he would destroy them, had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him and turned away his wrath from destroying them. Then they despised the pleasant land, having no faith in his promise. They murmured in their tents and did not obey the voice of the Lord. Therefore he raised his hand and swore to them that he would make them fall in the wilderness and would make their offspring fall among the nations, scattering them among the lands. Then they yoked themselves to Baal of Peor and ate the sacrifices offered to the dead. They provoked the Lord to anger with their deeds and a plague broke out among them. Then Phineas stood up and intervened and the plague was stayed and that was counted to him as righteousness from generation to generation forever. They angered him at the waters of Meribah and went ill with Moses on their account. For they made his spirit bitter, and he spoke rashly with his lips. They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them, but they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with blood. Thus they become unclean by their acts and played the whore in their deeds. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he abhorred his heritage. He gave into the hand of the nations so that those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies oppressed them, and they were brought into subjection under their power. Many times he delivered them, but they were rebellious in their purposes and were brought low through their iniquity. 
Nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. For their sake, he remembered his covenant and relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. He caused them to be pitied by those who held them captive. Save us, O Lord, our God, and gather us from among the nations, that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. And let all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. So we have there a very clear presentation of the history of the Israel people and how God dealt mercifully toward them, which is a kind of a sub-characteristic of the goodness of God, how he dealt in grace and favor towards them. He is a good God indeed, and we see that throughout history. We see that God is the source of all good things. Not only is he good, not only does he do good, but he is the source of all good things. So if you have something good in your life, it is from God, ultimately, is the connotation here, is the meaning here. We're going to go to James 1.17. James 1.17. <clears throat> Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. <clears throat> we can take from this verse and lots of other verses, which we're going to look at a few in a minute, that God only gives good things to his children. Only gives good things to his children. God is not bad in his gift giving. In other verses, we have God giving, he says, wouldn't you not give a rock when your child asks for bread, right? And that is in Matthew, which we're going to look at in a minute here. God always gives good gifts. Psalm 84, 11, for the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. And again, one just like it, Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. <clears throat> so we have some caveats there with God giving good gifts, kind of, meaning those who walk uprightly. Um, the caveats there aren't like God says, um, okay, you're good, now I get to give you, or you're good, now I get to give you good gifts. It's more like God wants to give us good gifts, and us obeying him just kind of opens the floodgates, right? When we obey him, he says, okay, great, now I get to give you good gifts. It's not like God is like, um, like one of the Norse gods or something where he is an angry God and he only gives people gifts who, who, uh, to sacrifice to him or something like that. No, God, because of who he is, we must follow him. And when we do, then he is able to give. It's because of his, his, who he is himself and his righteousness. As we choose to follow him, we begin to see a lot more clearly that he is the one who is giving those good gifts throughout our entire lives. Not just in when we recognize it, but all the time. But yeah, as we follow him, it becomes clearer and clearer and clearer. Um, God also gives good gifts to those who are sinners. 
Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also get with him graciously give, him all, give us all things? Did I? I missed. Yeah. And then we have, you know, this isn't here, but the idea that even though we're sinners, which I think that verse is... In Romans 5.8, even though that we're sinners still, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So even though we sin, God still conveys his goodness to us. But God is much better than even we are. And in Matthew, Jesus kind of outlines this in Matthew 7. Specifically verses 9 through 11, but I might do a little more because there's some context around it potentially. Matthew 7. Yeah, let's start in verse 7 instead of just 9 through 11. So go back to verse 7 if you can, Noel. Okay, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? So we have a couple ideas going on here. So one, Jesus is proclaiming to us, that we should be asking God for things, right? That's, that's an obvious thing from this verse. We should be asking God for things, and God is good and will give us those things that we ask him. Talking about things that we need. And he uses an idea that if we as sinful parents or people, humans, when a child comes to us and says, can I have some bread? We give it to them. Or can I have some water? You don't deny your kid water. I mean, unless it's 11 o'clock at night and they're potty training, but that's different. <laughs> when I was potty training Jordan the first time, this verse was like, should I be giving her water? I, I know. No, she needs to not wet the bed. <laughs> but we know how to give things that our children need. And notice this is why when we talk about goodness, we're not talking about moralism here or holiness or anything like that. We're talking about things that we need. We're talking about things that are approved. It's like when, our, when my kid says, hey, can I have lunch today? I say, yes. Can I have a sandwich for lunch? Yes. When they come to me and say, hey, can I have ice cream for lunch? I say, no, that's not approved. So this is kind of what's going on here. And Obviously, he's taking it to the extreme, talking about fish versus serpent or bread versus a stone, but it's the same idea. We know what our children need, and God is that much bigger, and he knows what we need. He knows what is good for us. He knows what are good gifts. He knows every single thing that we need. So, he is able to do that because he is so much greater. He also says here that we are evil. 
And again, this isn't a moralistic statement. This is a statement saying we are unable to actually know what we need. Like, I don't actually know what my daughters need all the time. I mean, I can guess most of the time. But if their stomach hurts, especially true of children, you don't know what is actually going on. They could just have to burp or, you know, go to the bathroom or have a tummy ache. They could have a whole number of things, and I kind of have to guess, right? But God knows us exactly. He knows exactly what we need, and he is able to give us the things that we exactly need all the time. Good gifts. That's what that good gifts means. And evil, meaning that we are kind of clueless. We don't know. We're unable to do this thing. We are unable to approve. We are unable to give good gifts. God is able to because he is the good God. Now, when we talk about God's discipline, it also is good. It's for our good. Every discipline he gives us is for our own good. In Hebrews 12, 10, it says, For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. So, This brings up an interesting question then about suffering in this world coming from God or not coming from God. And I'm veering off, so if it's a little scattered, I apologize. But suffering in this world. So we have God's good gifts, and obviously the author of Hebrews and many other authors throughout the New Testament and and even the psalm that we, we read about or read earlier lump the discipline of God in with his good gifts, which is very clear. God has the big picture in mind all the time. God's discipline is for our good. But what about human suffering or the suffering of creation? That, is that a good gift? So a hurricane comes through or you know, your baby gets cancer. Is that a good gift? No, that is not a good gift because it's not from God. That is from Either sin, the enemy, meaning Satan, or ourselves and our own choices, right? Those are not from God. Those are not good gifts. And those are not from God. Does that mean that God is not sovereign? No, that does not mean that God is not sovereign. But God, in his wisdom, and we'll talk about this a lot more later when we get to the sovereignty of God, God has relinquished some of his sovereignty for man to have sovereignty. Again, that gets very complicated, and we'll talk more about that a little bit later. But suffice it to say, things from God are always good. They are always worthy. They are always approved of. Things from man are always evil. Things from Satan are always evil. Things from the world, not just the world system, but things from the fallen creation, things like, you know, hurricanes or whatever else, maybe are not good. They are evil because we are in a fallen world, which means they are not from God. Okay. Everything God does is good. So, obviously as Christians, we should be trying to do what is good. What is approved, what is acceptable to God. 
things that God approves of. This is not just limited to the Christian brethren, but to all the world. Of course, though, we are to treat our Christian brothers and sisters in ways that God approves. So Paul says in Galatians 6, 9 and 10, And let us not grow weary of doing good, meaning let's not grow weary of doing the things God called us to do. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those of the household of faith. Now, initially this sounds a little bit like favoritism, like, oh, we're going to, you know, be extra good to those who are, are within our household. But that's not really what Paul's talking about. He uses the, the term household for a reason. Um, in humanity, who are the people we tend to treat the worst? Our family, those in our own household. So Paul's just reminding, hey, remember, treat those in your household well. Treat them good. Do not treat them evilly. Treat them as I would treat them. Love them. <clears throat> we need to set an example, and if those within the household can't even get along, why would anyone want to join the household? That's kind of what Paul's implying here. <clears throat> so we have a mandate to be good, to do what is right and acceptable to everyone around us. When we understand that God is the source of all goodness and the ultimate definition of goodness, the most approvable thing, we realize that God is the best thing for us and the only thing that we can truly or should truly seek after and strive for. He's the ultimate fulfillment in our lives, the ultimate fulfillment of everything that we desire. Psalm 73, 25 and 26 summarizes this very well. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That's God's goodness. And we're going to get now into some subcategories. And I think we're only going to get through love tonight. But God's mercy and grace are kind of also subcategories of God's goodness. So, Getting into the love of God, the love of God. Obviously, this is a big one. This is one that very that God uses throughout the Bible to characterize and summarize himself probably more than any other characteristic. God's love, this is our definition. God's love means that God eternally gives of himself to others. God's love means that God eternally gives of himself to others. So, before we talk about God's love, let's get a proper definition of what love is in general. There's lots of words for love in the New Testament. There's charis, there's eros, there's phileo, which all have different meanings based on who the love is going between. But the love that we're talking about is kind of an all-encompassing. So anytime you see the word love, it's always going to fit into this definition first, and then those other ones as kind of sub-definitions. So we're going to define love as being self-giving for the benefit of others. So love always has to have you removing a piece of yourself 
for the sake of somebody else, for the benefit of others. So it is something that is giving, and it's something that you have to sacrifice. You have to give up of yourself. And obviously this is a big one for us because the Bible associates love with God very prominently. And you're going to see most of these verses are going to come from John. John's theology of love is very uh, deep and refined. He spends a lot of time talking about love. 1 John 4, 8, God is love. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. This is also spoken of in depth in relation to the members of the Trinity. They are constantly in a state of love with each other. The Father loves the Son and has done so from eternity past into eternity future. John 17, 24. This is Jesus speaking. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me from the foundation of the world. Which is really kind of beautiful because he's asking God to bring the disciples, to bring his followers into communion and into dwelling with him, which is beautiful because in John, Jesus talks about us abiding in him as the vine and the branches, and we have all that beautiful language of abiding in God. This is all wrapped up in this. So God, Jesus wants God to invite his followers into this Trinitarian love to experience the love of the Father, which that's how we experience the love of the Father is through the Son. And then we have in John 3.35... The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. And then we have it going the other way, where Jesus loving the Father in John 14, 31. But I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Now, this love between the Father and the Son, of course, can be extrapolated to include the Holy Spirit. They each give of themselves for the benefit of each other all the time and constantly. They are in a constant state of love. This love within the Trinity is the ultimate form of love and the very definition of love. There's nothing that even begins to compare. The only thing that kind of, kind of does is God's love for humanity. And that's the expression that we find in God is God's love towards his sinful people. 1 John 4.10 says, In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So this is the ultimate expression of love is God giving of himself for our benefit in such a way that he does not get anything back. He doesn't get anything back. We have no way to actually love him in any way where he receives any benefits. Does that make sense? So we can love God, but he's not getting anything out of the equation. Only he is the one that is giving of himself. 
And we know that based on some of our discussion of God before about God not needing anything. God already has us. So us loving him is kind of, this is going to sound bad. I'm not being heretical when I say this, but we can't actually love God because we can't give him anything he doesn't already have, right? So it's almost like a, a, not a practice, but we are kind of just mirroring God in a way. God is the one that is doing all of the loving in our relationship with him. Romans 5.8 says, But God showed his love for us, and that we, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. <clears throat> God gave of himself for our sake. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave of himself for me. Probably the best, and I don't have this, but we can pull it up. The best um, verse that describes this giving up of himself is in Philippians 2. Philippians 2, verse 5 and on. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. That word emptied there is the key word. He totally emptied himself of his, his, his godhood, ultimately, that is slightly heretical, but it's, there's not really another way to say that. He emptied himself. He gave up himself completely. He gave up all the rights and privileges of being God and became a man. He was still God. He is still God. But he is not God as... No, I'm not going to go there. I'm going to get in trouble. <laughs> he is different obviously, because he is, was born in human flesh, in the likeness of men, in human form. And he had to die on the cross. That's not something to be, to be trivialized. <clears throat> he gave of himself completely. God's entire purpose in loving us is to give of himself for our own sake. As I said before, he does not get anything out of the transaction only we do. Yeah. Exactly. So it's hard for us to process. The only way we can actually say it is God became fully man. I don't really want to talk about just yet what God gave up because that can get sticky real quick. Not in a bad way. Just there's a lot you have to. It's not. Uh, it's called a paradox for a reason. God became fully man when he was fully God before and did not have the confines of flesh, did not have to die, etc., etc. God's entire purpose is to love us, to give of himself 
for us. Because God is who he is, he actually is able to give of himself fully for us. So if I give of myself fully, let's say for my children, that is not healthy. One, it probably means in the ultimate sense I will die for them, right? That doesn't work in human terms because, oh, I'm not here. I can't keep loving them. God is able to do that constantly because of who he is, because he is infinite, because he is full of power. He has all the power. He has all the love. So he is fully able to love us constantly to the full extent of his love. His love does not run out. It does not end because God does not run out and God does not end. Now, obviously, we are called to imitate this love. That's the commandment given to us that God has for his people. It's the great commandment. In Matthew 22, Verse 37, we have the Pharisees questioning Jesus about the greatest commandment. In verse 36, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, it's interesting here. He uses the idea of love and the command to love as something the Bible is depending on, right? It's something that all of the law and the prophets, which means the whole Bible, the whole word of God, is hanging upon. It's, this is not because, and this is what a lot of modern Christians use as a term to justify things like, you know, the idea of love winning. Love is love, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Some new agey thing where love is the ultimate answer. So it's not that. You know, these commandments in the Bible is not serving the idea of love. That's not what's going on here. It's not a command to love everyone as they, you know, something strange and twisted. That is a very twisted form of what this is. This is saying that love is the most important commandment because this is the core of who God is. The core of who God is is giving of himself. He gave of himself so we could have the scripture. He gave of himself so we could be close to him. And he gave of himself so his people could live in his presence. So mimicking him through loving God back and loving each other is the thing that holds all this together because that's what God is. That's what God has done in order to bring all this about is he gave of himself, right? which totally flies in the face of what the modern definition of love is. The modern definition of love is something for my own benefit, right? I do something for my benefit. You have to accept me on my terms, which is totally against what the idea of love in Scripture is. Love in Scripture is giving of yourself for the benefit of another person. Verse 
And God is the ultimate example of that. We have some verses to kind of underpin this idea that we are called to love each other. 1 John 5, 2 through 3. And you just stay in 1 John because I think all these are from 1 John. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Then we go to 1 John 2.15. Do not love the world or the things of this world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So it's interesting here, we have um, a, a kind of a separation between loving the Father and loving the world. Right, it's that you can't have both things, and we we see that throughout other places in Scripture. You cannot serve two masters. Ultimately, is what's going on here. You cannot love the world and love the Father because you can't give of yourself to two things. If I take something out of myself, it can only go one place. So we have to do it towards the Father. First John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. Again, this is that example we are following of God who is giving of himself and loving. We do that because he does it. These passages make it very clear that as the people of God, we look like, we only look like God when we love like God. This is the clear marker of the people of God to love as God has loved. Loving one another in, in a sacrificial way. It's a giving thing. It's a sacrificial act towards others. We're not called to have feelings. This isn't a, not, that was wrong. We're not called to have gushy feelings. This isn't a, a feelings discussion. This is a sacrificial and an action item here, right? This is, doesn't just stay in our hearts and minds. This is an action where we give of ourselves to others, that is what love truly is. It's like the, was it DC Talk that did that song? Love is a verb? Yeah, that's, what it, that's, that's what's being communicated here. We have to actively love each other. That's what love truly is. 1 John 4, 11 through 12. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Not, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So here we're doing a little bit of reading between the lines. But it's important to see that not only is love the marker for Christians, like saying, oh, those people are Christians because they're loving other people. But loving other people is literally what brings God to those around us. So John is writing here that no one has seen, seen God. But if we love each other, then God is with us and lives within us so that we can bring God to those around us. We literally show a piece of God to the people that we love. This is exemplified fully when we do as Jesus commands us to do in Matthew 5, which is to love our enemies. We are truly enemies of God, and he loved us and send his son to die for us, even though we're enemies, even though we're at enmity with him. This loving your enemies is the true example of the gospel in a fallen world. For only someone who loves like God loves can accomplish this task of loving your enemies. And Jesus says in Matthew 5, 43 through 48, 
You have heard that it is said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And I'm going to finish because I didn't finish typing it. And pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do you not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So the idea that God loves his enemies is so important for us to understand as we love those around us. John 13, 35 says, By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. This is the clear marker of who we are as Christians, is that we love each other. God wants us to love each other because that is the core of himself. That is the core of his identity. We can't get around that. Loving each other is acting as God would act. Any questions or comments? And when I say that we're not capable, it's really just a a logic thing because God is fully He has everything. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need us to love him. And our definition of love is taking something from myself and giving it to somebody else, right? Me sacrificing for that person's benefit. God receives no benefits from us. And so that's why I say we can't actually love him. But when we love him, we are responding to his love. And we are sacrificing of ourselves. We're giving ourselves to God. But the beautiful thing is he gives it right back to us and he gives us freedom and all these wonderful things based off of that. So, um, yeah, any other thoughts or questions? Okay, let's pray. We're gonna finish a little early, but that's okay. Dear Jesus, thank you for tonight. Thank you for your love. Thank you for showing us love even though we were still sinners, even though we still sin daily. Thank you for loving us for giving us your son, for perfecting us, and for completing the work that you are doing in us. Give us a wonderful week. In Jesus' name, amen.